New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Now, today we have Peter Griffin, uh, tech journalist extraordinaire, uh, coming in from Wellington. How are you, Peter? Happy New Year, Paul. Very good. Refreshed and uh, stunning day in Wellington, I've got to say, which um, isn't always the case, so you can't complain. That's good, and I was uh, I was following you a little bit on uh, on on social media over the over the break. Uh, I wasn't really posting um, very much at all, actually, but uh, some some stunning uh, photos and uh, sounds like you you had a pretty good time in the very much in the deep deep south. You spent a chunk of time there in uh, Stewart Island. Yeah, first visit to, to Stewart Island. We were, some friends there have a crib. Um, we went and stayed at that uh, just after Christmas, all the way through to um, after New Year. So I had had New Year's Eve in Stewart Island, which was crazy. Um, a big bonfire on the beach. Went to the classic Stewart Island South Seas Hotel quiz. The quiz night there is legendary. There were um, dozens of teams there, at least four teams from Wellington alone in town. Incredibly competitive. Um, so we didn't do so well. They came sort of in the middle of the pack. But um, after that, yeah, um, obviously did some of the Rakiora, um walk, which I thoroughly recommend. What really amazed me is the number of beaches down there, these beautiful powdery sanded beaches with clear water, um, cold water. <laughs> um, so you might want to pack a, a, a wetsuit. But um but just just stunning, un- unbelievable um, experience. So I'll definitely be back to um, to Rakiora. There's so much to see. The bird life. If you get out to Ulva Island in particular, and if you get Ulva, who's um, um, Goodwillie, Ulva Goodwillie is the the best guide to, to to take you out there. That's the most bird life I've ever seen. I go to um, Zealandia here all the time. I'm a member of that. I spend a lot of time at Zealandia, but. Um, the Ulva Island is the most New Zealand bird species I've seen in any one place. It's a cacophony of birds, so definitely worth a visit. If you do go to Stewart Island, you have to go to Ulva Island. That's great. Well, I think you know it's one of the one of the positives to come out of COVID is that we've been you know really uh, tourists in our own land again to you know to a degree that you know, probably hasn't been the case uh, before. Now, Peter, before we uh, before we jump in, maybe you can uh, fill you know for, for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with with all your work and what you do, um, maybe you can fill them in on um, you know where where you uh, where they can read your your content. And uh, and and so on because you're you're across you know quite a range of media and, and have been for many years. Yeah, I'm pretty much um, back freelancing as primarily as a, as a technology writer these days. Um, a bit a bit of science as well, but primarily technology. My background is as a newspaper reporter. I was the technology editor on the New Zealand Herald back in the early 2000s to the mid 2000s before the real boom in social media apps the rise of the iPhone, all that sort of stuff, very much covering enterprise tech, The what is very dull and boring now, but was the bread and butter of, of that beat back, back then. Um, then I left the tech world to set up something called the Science Media Center, which was addressing at the time, about 10 years ago, a bit of a market failure in that we did not have much good coverage of science-related issues, but we had much more complex issues coming down 
the, the road at us, such as climate change and genetic modification, one of the first things I worked on at the Science Media Center was the swine flu pandemic. So having to deal with that, and now we're obviously in the midst of uh, an even worse pandemic. So I spent a decade um, setting up that, working with journalists and media outlets, trying to improve the scientific literacy and just the engagement with the scientific community. So we, we um, media trained hundreds of scientists through our Science Media Savvy course. As a result of that, we've got now a lot of really confident scientists who are engaging on everything from nanotechnology. You've got people like NanoGirl, who was one of the first through our media training courses, all the way through to the climate scientists, the earth scientists who've done such a great job around the earthquakes. Um, so I think now we've got, in this country, we're, we're fortunate to have a much better scientific discourse than we have seen in some other countries. The anti-science movement, incredibly strong in the US and the UK, and that's been to the detriment of the country with the COVID pandemic. We do have those elements here, but the, the discourse in our mainstream media, by and large, is evidence-based. They don't always get it right. Um, they're under-resourced and stretched, and we don't have journalists with a scientific background. We're never going to have that. But what we do have is people who, who want to get it right and want to do a good job, and there are more of them than ever with the likes of the spin-off newsroom and, and other outlets that are now um, resourcing the science round. So I think we're, we're well-placed. You know, we still have the COVID conspiracists, the, the 5G nutters, those sorts of people, but it's, it's imperative and it's responsibility of each of us independently to call that BS out and to, um, to question that stuff when we see it in our social media feeds and when our friends are peddling it. And I think Kiwis are, are getting on board with that. Great. Oh well, thank thanks for that. Well, let's uh, let's jump in now. Today, I sort of really wanted to to look at some of the topics uh, that are that are really important, very very uh, you know topical sort of uh, time wise. I want to delve into a little bit about um, this this talk around you know having some uh, some big data centres maybe based in in New Zealand. These hyperscale data centres, as as they're called, um, Data Grid has been uh, proposed. And, and looks to be uh, something that will move ahead in, uh, in the uh, Invercargill region. Um, we've had the Reserve Bank uh, impacted by a, a cyber security uh, incident in, uh, in, the, in, in recent weeks that's been uh, in the media you know, today and, and, and in recent, uh, recent days. Um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have just been um, really huge. People talking about it everywhere right now. Um, it's sort of Seem to have been, uh, you know, quiet for for some time, um, but then there's been this this huge uh, ramp up, and with a ramp up, often you know there, there's a bit of a slide, and there's there's all sorts of uh, you know discussions and things going on around that. Um, so we definitely want to talk about that, um, and there's a bunch more topics there that I hope we'll get to as well, including. Um, the role of um, of social media uh, in in what's happened in the US recently, and regulation and management and the and you know who decides you know who should have a platform 
you know how we how we should move forward on that stuff. So um, plenty to to delve into there, Peter. Um, to to start with, now you've just been in uh, in Invercargill, as you know, as well as um, across there on uh, Stewart Island. Um, what did, what did you uh, you pick up? Sort of talking to people. There's there's obviously a sort of a um, a, a time of real uncertainty there, with uh, you know a lot of people's livelihoods likely to you know to disappear um you know with with the with the closing of the uh, the aluminium um smelter um and and really some interest in well as data grid and this idea of having uh, you know hyperscale data centers in the in in that part of the country um to sort of you know to a degree to mop up the uh, the spare electricity um that will be uh, that will be uh, generated um you know, but also, you know, what, what's what's its role in terms of you know helping with uh, with those who, whose livelihoods have been Im- impacted? What, what did what did you learn down there, Peter? Well, the first thing that strikes you, I think, if you haven't been to, to Invercargill, which I had, and this was my first visit, is just what a what a uh, presence the bluff uh, or the TY Point aluminium smelter actually is. You, you look out from over the plains at Invercargill, and, and when you're flying into the city. And you see this massive singular smokestack out on the point there, which is huge. And, and that is the smokestack for the aluminium smelter. Um, and when you talk to people around town, you know, I very much went into the, talking to people in, in pubs at the airport, that sort of thing, just locals asking them, well, what, what do you reckon about TY shutting down? And um, they're very passionate about it. They're very worried about this. They realize how important that this infrastructure is to their city. It employs a lot of people directly and then the service industry around that. You know, I talk to people who their livelihoods are dependent on those um, aluminium smelter workers coming out of there. They're well paid. It's a high average salary at, at that factory. They're spending money around town. And, and Invercargill, beautiful town, a lot of heritage there, but you do get the sense that it's a fragile economy as well. Um, and and this would be a major blow. So I sort of went down there thinking, you know, this is this is this is a sunset industry. The sooner we get rid of it, the better. It's a high polluting industry. The sooner we we use this energy for um, for more sustainable purposes, the better. But the reality is, I think, is it definitely changed my viewpoint. Talking to people is that um, they need this, um, and if this winds down quickly we're really going to have to mobilize to help out Southland and while you know the data grid venture which we're going to, going to talk about I'm 100% behind it I love the idea of it the sense I get down there it's not enough it's not going to be a big enough employer um, it's not going to, to actually use a lot of that spare capacity that would be freed up with TY Point shutting down in fact the data grid people have already secured 100 megawatts of capacity from Meridian so they can do that regardless of what happens with TY Point. So the argument down there is give us the additionality. We need 10 data grid type things that actually employ significant numbers of people and allow them to retrain if this is actually going to be a win for um, the region. So I think there's a question mark over, over that. And in my mind, a longer time frame to wind down TY would be preferable, especially considering, as people reminded me down there, this is some of the best aluminium in the world that's being produced there. People pay a premium for our aluminium. Um, it's used in aeroframes of, um, of 
jumbo jets, all sorts of stuff because it's really good. So if we shut it down, that production will go somewhere else. And frankly, a lot of countries will struggle to provide as high quality aluminium and to do it as cleanly as, as we do. So definitely I went from being a, a digital um, uh, white collar guy to being a, a blue collar guy in the pub talking to some of those people and actually seeing what it's like on the ground. That's awesome you, that you were able to uh, to do that and bring that perspective. Um, look, I'm, I'm certainly in the in the camp. If we can make it work to have these um, hyperscale data centres, uh, you know, here in New Zealand, there's you know there's there seem to be you know, quite a bunch of, of benefits. So, yep. If look, if if uh, if Ty Point can can keep running, um, you know that that's incred- incredibly helpful, but. You know, ultimately, you know that that's you know out out of our hands to a uh, uh, to you know to a big a big degree. Um, but yeah, if we can uh, if we can move move forward with uh, with more data centres coming into New Zealand, there in the you know in the south, there are some really great uh, you know benefits from a perspective of of cooling because you know as far as New Zealand's concerned, it's you know consistently a much cooler climate than uh, um, than you know the, the well, I guess the further north you go, uh, the more cooling you're gonna you're gonna need. The further south you go, then uh, um, the the less you're going to need so you know from an efficiency perspective that's good and of course the electricity uh you know, is is coming um from you know renewable source and in, in terms of being uh you know hydro powered uh there so you know there, there's lots of good things about it on the flip side not necessarily providing a, a really large number of uh, of jobs, right? You're, you're setting up these uh, these data centres and, and technology, but it's not going to need thousands of people to uh, um, to man and to um, uh, you know to, to to run run those things, um, you know, to, to to resource them people wise. Um, how 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 do you uh, feel our our chances are of of this being um, you know a successful thing for uh, for New Zealand? It seems like there, there's there's two parts here. Um, you know, in order to make it work for uh, for Data Grid to uh, to operate, and they seem to be a fairly well you know long way down the track. Um, there's talk of an, an extra fibre connection from uh, from Southland, um, you know, link, linking up to uh, uh, to Australia. Um, so you get that sort of lowest latency. It would it would provide um, then you know benefit to you know to Australians having a very very close data centre, but it's it's you know offshore for them in, in terms of uh, um, you know backup and 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 other sorts of uh, things. There are a diversity. Um, so there's that aspect, and then you know the other aspect is, of course, they've got to sign up the big players. We know uh, Microsoft have already committed to uh, to something uh, in in Auckland, um, but we you know we don't know how hard it will be and how long it will take to get those sort of deals with AWS, who you can imagine um, would want to, uh, as they have done in other markets, probably follow Microsoft to uh, to, to having a, a local. You know, at least one local data centre. Um, there's Google and and others as well. Um, what's what's your take? So, um, 
I really like the guys who are behind this venture. Um, Malcolm Dick is a legend of the, of the tech and telco space in New Zealand. Core Plus was his first venture. Teamed up with Remy Galasso for Hawaii Cable. Everyone tried to get that off the ground. It was those guys who actually did it. And that seems to be a great success. So the pedigree of these guys is exceptional. They are a fair way down the track and I think there are two real drivers that will make this a success the first one is that the big three cloud computing players Amazon which is by far the number one Microsoft with its Azure platform and as you said there's a region coming to New Zealand Google which is a smaller player but um, significant and then you've got Alibaba cloud as well which is tipped to surpass Google in terms of global market share this year. So that's a big player that should be on our radar as well. One thing that these companies have in common is that they have a mandate to power their data centers with green energy. And some of them have set very uh, aggressive targets on when they will be 100% renewably powered, Google in particular, Microsoft the same. They're literally saying by the middle of this decade, they want to have 100% renewable energy powering all of their operations. And these are very data-intensive operations. They use a lot of power. So as you said, the cooler temperature down here will reduce their power consumption, they estimate, by up to 30%. And we've seen in Iceland how that has attracted not only Bitcoin miners in large numbers, but lots of corporates the likes of BMW, who are doing a lot of computational design work, are basing their stuff on servers up there. So that is a huge driver. And if you look at, for instance, Google's business around the world, some of its data centers run on very dirty energy, particularly in places like Taiwan, uh, around the Asia-Pacific region where they just don't have enough renewable. We do. So they could legitimately claim that they are 100% renewable later this year if they really wanted to. The other driver is distributed computing. So what these companies are increasingly doing is spreading their workloads around their data center regions around the world. So they can send really intensive uh, workloads to places where there is renewable energy. And the benefit of doing that is that they then don't have to buy carbon offsets to meet their goals of being green companies, um, which is a bit dubious. You know, there's there's not a lot of trust in that system, and they're Agreed. all using them at the moment, these sorts of schemes. But if they can do it directly off hydropower or wind or solar, the credibility is so much greater. So if they can send a lot of computing tasks to a data center in New Zealand that are not latency-dependent, that aren't real-time applications you could potentially have big businesses doing a lot of processing down in Southland. So I think those are the, are the two drivers. It's unfortunate that Microsoft, the timing hasn't quite synced up with DataGrid. Hopefully they can do something together, but they seem fairly well down the track on building data centers with Canberra data centers in Auckland. But we do have Amazon, the big player in the world, and we do have Google, who have the same remit to have green cheap, affordable processing. So I, I think it's, it's, it's a goer. And if you look at AWS, the deal it did last year with Weta Digital to take all of its workloads to the cloud, it could appeal to a lot more companies like that that have, have really intensive applications. And I don't care where in the world 
that those applications are. They're happy to render stuff in the cloud in Southland and have people in LA working on them. That's a, a huge advantage. Yeah, look, I, I think uh, really exciting, and I hope uh, I hope these things certainly uh, progress, and you know, hopefully at uh, at at some pace, and we can get some of those uh, uh, those those deals done. But you know, as as you say, um, those uh, those behind it have got a you know pretty good uh, pretty good uh, su- success there, and and uh, Malcolm and uh, and Remy in terms of uh, uh, you know previous things. So I'm feeling pretty up. Now, um, last week we gave um, brief mention, uh, and we didn't have time to sort of delve into a discussion around, um, you know, the the growth of um, and the the sort of this increased uh, focus on cryptocurrencies uh, recently. And you uh, you wrote a wrote a piece um, a, f- a few days ago uh, that was uh, probably Thursday um, Thursday last last week um, for Business Desk. Uh, you know, sort of sharing sharing some of your some of your thoughts on you know what's happening. Is this going to be a um, you know a breakthrough year ahead for, uh, for for crypto? And look, we've talked about cryptocurrencies and blockchain. You know, I don't know, you know, quite a number of number of times on the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Um, not you know, not so much over the last uh, you know year or year or so, uh, but. Hey, it's 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 very much back in uh, back in focus, and the sort of prices that we're we're seeing on uh, you know whether it's Bitcoin, which uh, um, not sure what it what it's at now. I think when we when we were chatting last week, it was around. Um, in the direction of of uh, fifty thousand uh, New Zealand uh, dollars for uh, you know for a, for a single Bitcoin, of course you can buy sort of you know fractions of and 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 so on. Um, but this was you know and it really un- unprecedented in terms of uh, values we, we we've seen. The last high, I guess we're, we're looking a couple you know a couple of years or or, or so um, back. So there's there'd been you know quite a dip there you know for for a period of um, of Time, maybe. In fact, it's probably. I think it was 20, 2017 We saw those highs. So there's been this sort of big, um, you know, gap and a lot of uncertainty really around whether uh, cryptocurrencies are, are safe or whether it's it's very much a, a huge gamble. Um, in the in the meantime, on one of our other shows, the New Zealand Everyday Investor, um, there's been a fair bit of discussion on there and 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 talking about it. I guess with a with a, a reasonably sort of you know clear and and uh, and level headedness, um, which you know some listeners may want to sort of delve into into some of those uh, discussions and approaches to um, you know how you can invest in it with you know without uh, um, I guess putting everything you you own at risk. Um, uh, Peter, what what are your um, you know thoughts on where where this is uh, where this is headed? Well, I, I don't Im- I don't invest in, in Bitcoin because I, I don't really understand what is behind the volatility a lot of the time. Um, obviously, at the moment, you can see why Bitcoin has been surging. It's dropped. I think it's down to f- under forty eight thousand today. But yeah, you know, we saw in t- twenty seventeen it, it hit a, a record high, and early this year it's it's at an even greater high and and you can sort of see that in a time of uncertainty a lot of people do see bitcoin literally as 
the digital equivalent of gold. In times of volatility, when particularly central banks are printing money around the world, we could see inflation as a result of that. They're looking to Bitcoin, which is a, a limited. There's only 18.5 million Bitcoins. So there will only ever be 21 million. So it's it's not tied to any fiat currency, but it is a limited supply, and people see a lot of intrinsic value in it, so they want it. So it's surging at the moment as people get into it, but not only people, um, institutions are getting into it in a way they haven't before. Billions of dollars that have been bought up in, in the last year, the likes of um, uh, the, the, uh, Jack Dorsey's payment company um, it put $50 million, I think, of, of Bitcoin. Square, yeah. So, right. so they are buying it. Organizations are legitimizing it by buying into it. But we haven't seen the breakthrough moment that has been talked about for a long time. For people like myself that are more interested in this as a way of trading and exchanging value with friends, uh, but also with merchants to pay for things um, with with this, with lower transaction fees, more innovation around the payment experience, not being beholden to the, the credit card companies and the contactless fees that they charge. That's what really excites me about um, about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. And the, the breakthrough that we will see this year is PayPal making it available as a payment method with 26 million merchants around the world and what that will mean for the acceptance of Bitcoin. It doesn't mean that merchants are going to be handling Bitcoin, but um, PayPal will convert that into their fiat currency of choice. So they don't ever touch the Bitcoins. But just the sheer fact that you are able to hold Bitcoin in a wallet, in a trusted wallet um, with the PayPal name on it, and pay people with great convenience, I think is the sort of breakthrough that this needs. We thought it might have been um, when uh, Facebook tried to get into it with Libra, that that would be a breakthrough moment for, for crypto. That, for, for numerous reasons, was a, was a disaster. And um, I think a lot of people are happy that that never went ahead. But PayPal, um, you know, I think, has, has the potential to legitima- legitimize this. We're also seeing regulations coming in in the U.S., which will um, make it easier and more more comfortable for investors and financial institutions and that to hold Bitcoin and to be able to trade it as well. So there's a lot of things converging, which um, are giving critical mass to it. And I think that's sort of behind the surge in value we've seen in the last few months. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, there, there's, yeah, certainly a big sort of you know rise in interest, and yeah, I mean, I, I agree in terms of those things that are uh, that are that are helping drive it, and when you've got yeah zero interest rates uh, or, or near zero on uh, on money in the bank and and banks printing money, it uh, um, you know it does push people to look in, in different areas. It's been very interesting during uh, you know during this period of COVID, uh, just noticing how much interest there has been from you know general public in terms of investing through you know varying online platforms and so on and and this to me also in in part seems to be a flow you know a sort of continuation um, of that and uh, and and that you know interest and well where else can uh, uh, you know can can we invest um, but uh, yeah. 
look, I think it, I mean it, it's very much um, you know what you say. I'm I'm very interested in that where where it becomes something that's uh, that's relevant for everyday transactions. And um, you know, going back, I don't know. It was probably at least it was maybe two or, two or three years ago. Um, I, I talked about on the show an, an experience at a um, at an Australian uh, fast food out. I think it was Red Rooster at uh, Brisbane Airport that were that were able to take uh, you know crypto for for a transaction. Um, I can't remember what I, what I used at, at the time, whether it was Litecoin or uh, uh, Ethereum. Um, but you know that that process at that stage was uh, was was fairly clunky. And at this stage in New Zealand to to buy crypto, um, I mean, I guess there, there there are a few channels. I was I was reading about one of them the uh, the other day, which uh, uh, you know a, a, a Kiwi guy that you could find uh, online who would uh, would take your money and and convert it to crypto. But um, you know, it, it, it turned out from uh, from the reports that uh, he's been uh, he's been done for money money laundering and was uh, uh, working quite closely with varying gangs. So there's that sort of you know dark side. Um, but I you know I think on the um, or sort of suspicious side to uh, um, you know the the way in which uh, you know crypto has been used in in the past. But you know now we've we seem to have. Um, you know, quite strict anti-money laundering sort of you know, regulations really uh, internationally that mean although the, the platforms themselves, um, you know, your transactions can be uh, anonymous, usually if you're dealing with somebody uh, local, then, you know, you've got to jump through these varying hoops to, uh, to you know, to prove who you are. So I see there's there's a certainly a level of legitimacy that, that's really, uh, you know, coming um, or, you know, has, has come to... Um, um, you know, transacting in, in, in cryptocurrencies over you know over the la- the last couple of years or or, or so. Um, so yeah. I think it's going to be pretty interesting to see uh, to see how how it plays out. Yeah, and um, there is tension over that at the moment, where the U.S. government is saying if if we are going to give this legitimacy, we need to be able to see more detail about each transaction that's going on. Um, in, in the cryptocurrency space and the likes of Jack Dorsey are saying, well, I can't be expected to to supply all of that information. So there's a lot of tension there on, on how that will end up. But the, the other leg off it, which gets talked about in separate terms a lot, is the blockchain innovation. And that's where I'm also really uh, passionate and interested to see what's coming uh, down the track. For instance, you know, I'm just in the process of selling my house I'm settling on the same day with the person who's buying the house. I'm settling on the place that I'm moving to as well. And it's a complete nightmare, you know, because I'm reliant on the bank um, of the person who is buying the place, putting the money in my account. And then I have to put the money from my account into the house, the, the vendors that I'm buying off. So it's a, it's a nightmare and it's all got to go like clockwork. If you had a blockchain system, that could be an instantaneous transaction and a low cost transaction that doesn't require big lawyers fees. That's the innovation I want to see. And we are locally seeing a small but uh, innovative group of people, that, um, the likes of Centrality and others that are doing cool things in the space. There's a company called Finance that's associated with that Centrality blockchain or a variation of it. Sorry, what company was that? I think you, you cut out there for a moment, Peter. Power Finance. And the, the aim of this company is 
is to make it easy for um, any company, it could be a, a car yard or a, a housing company, to offer finance um, as part of their bundle. Typically, they will team up with a finance company to offer finance. So they are issuing on the blockchain uh, basically digital tokens, which are backed by real fiat dollars, and they've got an agreement with the Reserve Bank to do that, uh, with Treasury to, to, to do that. So um, there's a lot of innovation going on in this space. It's still early days, and consumers don't really understand it or, or trust it. But I think um, that it, that real example of where it could help me with my property situation, I think is going to be the driver towards um, real tangible outcomes in that space. Yeah, I think um, that that aspect of it, I'm I'm very curious about. We haven't kind of probably seen the um, you know the level of results maybe that that some of us might might have expected. It seems these things are sort of you know taking um, you know ta- taking taking some some time, um, but. Yeah, it's great to see that there's a there's a you know a chunk of activity happening right here, um, you know, in New Zealand on the innovation you know front as far as uh, you know block blockchains concerned. Um, now, a few other things that I, that we did want to sort of delve into, um, and one of those is is what's just been happening in in the US Capitol in recent days. Um, you know, Trump's been you know effectively banned off uh, the, the the key social media platforms, um, and then you know. A, 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 um, one of the, I think, and, and I don't know too much about um, um, the, these sort of far right platforms, but uh, one of the one of the platforms that it looked like Trump was going to uh, uh, going to jump onto has been uh, uh, basically, you know, shut down. What are what are your thoughts on uh, you know all all of these things happening? Um, because you know we really sort of see a scenario here where um, you know social media has been has been used to sort of you know help um you know this um um you know you know create this this event that's led to the the, the loss of life and is and is really sort of um you know i th- aim to throw a spanner in the works of of democracy in the US um you know it doesn't doesn't seem like we're in kind of uh, um an ideal position with social media here yeah um bottom line i think Twitter and Facebook um, have done the right thing in um, deplatforming the, the president. Amazon's done the right thing in saying we don't want to host Parler and, and these other apps because ultimately, I think if, if you're in business and you realize the power that you have, you, know, you have to be able to live with the business decisions that you make. And if you know that by hosting these companies, you could be responsible or, or contribute to to inciting revolts or the deaths of people, you have to make that conscience call. I think wh- whether they're doing it for the right reasons is is the big unknown. We know that there's a change of administration. We know that these companies, um, in some cases, want regulation, but they want light touch regulation, and they want regulation that doesn't crimp their ability to make a lot of money. So they are cozying up to the Democrats. They are looking to be proactive and I think they've used this as an opportunity with very little um, political fallout because 
the guy they've deplatformed is on the way out. Um, so it's very convenient for them. But I think it, this has, apart from the tragic loss of life and, and the despoiling of the, the capital, um, which is outrageous, I think it is serving a very useful purpose, which is to actually force the hand of regulators who have been asleep at the wheel for way too long on this to actually say, we need to do something about this. And the, the, the levers are there to some extent. The FTC has a bit of control. The FCC, Department of Justice, Commerce, they all have a role to play in regulating the digital economy and these digital platforms, but it's not working. And so this is the opportunity with quite a dramatic event, I think, for them to say, we need to address this. The Democrats have Congress now. They have Biden, who has been a bit ambivalent to some degree about and, and, and guarded about what he wants to do around regulating big tech. But we know there are a lot of senators and, and people in the House who have already written up uh, proposals for regulation. And we know the Department of Justice um, and the FTC are very aggressively going after the likes of Google and Facebook with antitrust action. So the scene is set for 2021 to to be all about the move, in some cases, to dismantle and undo some of the acquisitions that these companies have made. But probably as importantly is to clean up the digital domain or at least attempt to police it more effectively than it has been. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um I yeah, it's it's um it's I guess sort of you know thrown me a little bit when I sort of you know step back a little bit and look at say you know the Arab Spring which was you know very much um, you know facilitated through through digital channels and and social media. Um, then we look at, uh, at at China for instance, where you know we 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 know that uh, you know the government has has put some uh, you know fairly extreme you know measures in place um you know not just around uh, social media around you know ac- access to uh, to to content in, in general uh you know blocking you know varying platforms although it, it's it, it actually se- you know seems okay for you know certain certain people to to use these platforms be they you know members of of, of government or um you know other people within china that that have you know maybe you know posted on uh, on on, you know American sort of you know social media um, and yeah it just sort of it, it gets me thinking that um, you know the more that you you put sort of uh, regulation you know in, in place it almost sort of plays into the hands of um, you know of those other regimes that would uh, you know work to you know subvert um, the sort of free speech that you know most of us would w- would agree um, you know is really really important and so it's um, yeah I think there's there's probably you know two sides to this it's not uh, it's maybe not quite as simple and and um, uh, you know and 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 cut it and dried as um, you know maybe what we've seen in in, in recent uh, recent days when you sort of step back and you know and look at the the bigger picture and uh, you know if the US and um, you know other sort of you know big democracies are, uh, are just you know are putting a lot of levels of, of control uh, around these these channels then uh, 
yeah, it's uh, it become it becomes pretty hard for for other countries who who may have quite uh, quite different uh, values. Um, you're sort of in a, some ways playing you know playing into their hands, um, you know, and and you know, I wonder where we where we could be in in a, in a decade in terms of just how how these things might uh, might might look. Yeah, I, I don't think we need to to uh, or the U.S. regulators need to go incredibly heavy-handed on this. At the moment, we have a situation where we have conflicted parties. We have these companies making essentially corporate decisions on who has access to their platforms, and technically it's their right to do that. They don't need to host various people on there if they don't want to, but they recognize their power uh, and their, their influence and their reach, so they take these decisions seriously. But at the end of the day, they're conflicted, and they cannot make objective decisions about this there are lots of precedents around the world including here in new zealand we have a broadcasting standards authority we have a media council where where these difficult decisions are made about who should be censored uh who has breached standards and therefore should pay a penalty and we need to do the same thing for social media the problem is social media is so permeable and vast and amorphous that it's a much harder job to do it. But at the very least, we can have an independent group working to a charter that deals with the super influencers, the people who have 88 million followers, and literally with one tweet can be responsible for people's deaths. We can deal with those people in a manageable form and police the industry to self-police itself. That's got to be the starting point. And we don't have an overarching digital regulator in the United States, which is a real problem and it's proven to be a real problem. So that's where we need to start. And it may cost uh, the industry um, some money to to do that and and the U.S. government. And we will be subject to this at arm's length because decisions that are made in Washington will impact what we see on social media here in New Zealand. It doesn't stop us from making our own decisions about that and policing these platforms on a local basis as well. And so far, we've been very hands-off on that, but we may see some changes this year with potential strengthening of you know, hate speech laws and things like that. That's definitely the cards. Give our regulators the opportunity to de-platform people as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I uh, I think it, w- it would be important that there be uh, there be some you know, alignment there between uh, between different uh, uh, different different countries. And yeah, you know, I would be you know, very very interested to see um, the role that our our government would uh, would play, and uh, you know how we could contribute to that. I yeah, I imagine um, yeah they've got to find that sort of right sort of balance that you know hopefully could uh, could stay in place on. A, uh, yeah, with, with some improvement over time, but you know, laws don't seem to change very often. Um, you know, the, the governments sort of tend, tend tend to change more often than the uh, the legislation. So, um, yeah, it's it's um, a, a minefield to to navigate. But I hope we get that uh, we get that right. Um, now, moving on, in terms of a, another thing that's uh, that's impacted us. Um, 
um, you know, locally these um, varying uh, issues as as far as cyber security is concerned. Um, you know, of course, uh, in in recent days with the Reserve, um, you know, bank having been uh, you know compromised, and um, you know, th- this one I guess is, I see it as as just a another or you know stacked on top of you know dozens um, you know of other cases that have that have um, you know caught our attention in the mainstream media over the last uh, uh, last year or so um, you know it's it's another um, wake up call around uh, cyber security I think uh, you know what what we've seen um, in the US and and uh, internationally um, and just you know just in in the last few weeks um, added to this one sort of highlights that there there is no organisation that is immune uh, to being impacted by cyber security incidents and the the reserve uh, bank um, case we don't know you know as always you never know all of the inside uh, inside details um, but you know in that case it seems to be their um, you know the software uh, provided to them for some um, you know what what uh, when you look at the uh, the website of the the provider um, you know looks to be uh, software that that's designed very much with cyber security in mind um, for for sharing of uh, of files but uh, um, you know clearly that platform uh, got hit and you know the the impacts um, you know of that I'm I'm sure will be felt for for some time um, the software the vendor we understand was involved uh, Excelion um, yeah, when when you have a have a look at uh, at their website, sort of it, it reads like, uh, oh, this would be the appropriate sort of vendor uh, to go for for you know so, something like uh, Reserve Bank in terms of how they sell themselves as a uh, enterprise content firewall and, and and some of the things that they uh, delve into. But um, yeah, clearly clearly uh, not. Uh, not quite as simple as that, and um, you know, lot, lots of people have have got uh, have got burnt on this occasion. Yeah, and um, it's it's disappointing. I, I, I don't think this is as serious, obviously, as as the hacking attacks on the NZX, which um, you know technically didn't attack uh, their systems; they attacked the website, which is integral to. The flow of information that allows the stock exchange to operate, so they had to shut that down. Without that flow of information, that was much more disruptive and targeted. That was a deliberate targeting of a key piece of New Zealand infrastructure, our national stock exchange. This seems to be very much the Reserve Bank being caught up in some infiltration of that file sharing software that wasn't really targeted at the Reserve Bank, but nevertheless is not good because there could be sensitive information there. And I think what it shows is is what the security analysts have been telling us for the last couple of years, which is that the big growing threat vector is what they call the software supply chain. So it's those apps and platforms that you are using that you brought into the fold within sometimes your network because you trust them. They come from big established companies that have a track record of cybersecurity. And look at SolarWinds last year, which was a prime example of that, where a piece of trusted software, which allows you to manage your network, 
was the back door for malicious code to enter your network and potentially allow hackers to have a look around your network and potentially steal data. Um, that has has been an area that security analysts are, are telling us all we need to focus on. They talk about this zero trust environment that you should be implementing. Yeah, and it very, really very is, important. To, yeah, traditionally it's all been about harden your, your defenses, um, uh, identity management, multi-factor authentication, phishing attacks, the human being the weakest part of the puzzle. If they can steal your identity, they can get in, mimic your credentials and, and steal your stuff. So now they're, they're basically saying you, you need to, to look behind you at your suppliers and how robust they, they are. So I think we'll see bottom line is more spending this year. IDC is talking about globally spending on cybersecurity is likely to be up 8 to 10% because companies have underinvested, particularly in, in that area. And in practical terms, all we can really do is is, is be a bit ro- more robust about examining our third-party suppliers, doing software audits, having watertight contracts that say, look, our service level agreement with you you're responsible if something goes wrong here. We need breach notifications, but we also need some assistance very quickly to sort this problem out. So I think there'll be a lot of IT managers looking to tighten up and to audit their relationships with third-party software suppliers, particularly as in the last year, all of us in, in every company, every organization have introduced new apps into our networks. And, and some of them are big players like Zoom and and, and, and others and teams which have relatively good security but others maybe not well um, I mean so certainly Zoom were sort of called into question weren't they from you know they'd, they'd, they'd been so focused on uh, on ease of use that uh, you know it looked as though the cyber security aspects was uh, you know was pretty low on the agenda and of course that you know they've put efforts into that and I and I think I mean that one is probably just you know an example of what is the case you know right right across um, you know the, the varying sort of software um, provider ecosystems is you know, there can be big players who, you know, actually are dropping the ball in, in you know, in one major way or, um, you know, or, or another. So it's uh, it's not necessarily super simple, is it? It's not. Um, and, and I think particularly what the NZX hack last year showed is, you know, there are question marks over where the responsibility lies with, our national security agencies, did they do enough? It's hard to know because there's very little visibility into what they do for good reasons. But we do know, for instance, that Australia has just sunk you know, $1.5 billion of investment into cybersecurity. They're hiring hundreds of people. They're even going on the offensive. They're saying we are going to mimic or, or, and to some degree the capability of China and Russia and America, and we are going to go after hackers um, on their home turf, we're going to send digital warriors out into the world to stop them before they get to Australian servers because they've seen the impact that this is having on government departments with the theft of intellectual property and um, some big corporates in Australia as well. We, we're not really in that space yet, and I'm not saying we, we should be, but are we investing enough? What are our systems with Cortex, this, the 
protective layer of critical infrastructure in New Zealand? Is it best practice? Um, I think we do really need to have a good look at our cybersecurity defences and how well protected um, our critical infrastructure is because we haven't even seen the start of what's going to be possible when all of our hydro dams and, and our critical you know, traffic systems are much more networked. Are we ready for that revolution? Because it's possible now, but is it, is it viable uh, from a safety and security point of view to do it? Yeah, look, there's there's a lot more there to uh, to delve into, Peter. So I think we we uh, we probably have to reconvene uh, for another episode at a, at a later um, date. But look, it's been absolutely fabulous to uh, to catch up with you um, as we do in these uh, sort of I guess uh, you know kickoff episodes for uh, for 2021 for the New Zealand Tech Podcast. And uh, you know I think um, look, there's a lot of important topics here. Some of these we we probably need to sort of you know, pick apart with some uh, dedicated uh, discussions and de- dedicated um, episodes. Um, but it's it's been absolutely fantastic uh, chatting with you today. Um, is there anything else you want to add, or um, you know, just g- give people a, a pointer to um, um, you know anywhere you've been writing recently that uh, you think that they might want to uh, you know take a look at at, at some of your uh, your content? Um, I should also mention a huge thank you to our show partners, Sumo Logic. Uh, Vodafone, Spark, Vocus, HP, Gorilla Technology, and Umbrella Connect. Um, of course, Umbrella Connect is one of the one of the um, the outlets that you've been uh, you've been writing for. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Yeah, Umbrella Connect obviously um, focus on on what's going on in the world of cloud computing. There, Umbrella is a cloud computing company, but they've done something that's quite unique in the world of publishing. I haven't seen it in this country um, so far, which is an independent platform for coverage of cloud computing-related issues. So there are several contributors on there, Chris Schultz and Camp Mules and, and yourself with your podcast stuff featured on there, which is trying to do a bit of a deep dive, drill down a bit into what's going on in the whole world of cloud and associated technologies. So I think you know that's quite a quite a cool venture. It's experimental. We'll see how it goes this year. But that's umbrellaconnect.com. I'm writing there and others. Business Desk. I'd really recommend um, if it's a subscription service, but one of the most consistent business sort of wire services in New Zealand at the moment. Particularly if you're interested in the stock market. Um, great coverage there. I do a tech column there. Um, Stuff Science. I'm the, the columnist there, writing about science related issues. And also New Zealand Listener, which is back in business after unfortunately closing down um, during lockdown in March last year. Devastating for a lot of the staff and writers there, but it's been bought new ownership. Bauer Media sold it uh, to a great group of individuals who have set it up again, and we're back in business. So I've got a tech column there and um, writing tech features. So th- those are the sort of outlets uh, I spread myself around the place a bit, but I think you know every year I sort of say this: it's going to be a pretty amazing year in tech. But I think, as a result of all of these issues that we've canvassed in the last hour, and we could drill down into them to a huge degree, this is going to be a spectacular year um, in terms of the big picture trends, and also what we do in, in our country with a, a new government that's empowered to actually make the change that they initially promised. How does tech enable that? And we're starting to get a bit more of a coherent sort of strategy with these 
industry transformation plans, which target things like the agri-tech sector, digital technologies, advanced manufacturing. We're starting to actually get some serious thinking about how we use all of this great technology and resource to tackle some of the big problems that the country is facing, like inequality, um, environmental sustainability, all that sort of stuff. So I think it's going to be a fascinating year from a local perspective, let alone all of these global trends that are going to drive what we do as well. Agreed. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just so important to the the success of New Zealand as a as a nation that uh, you know we're leveraging you know technology, um, you know, and in, in innovative ways, and we just continue to push forward on that front. And you know, as you say, it, it really um, you know will help address some of the big challenges that we have, uh, and I think it's key to our future. All right. Well, um, thank you, Peter, and uh, thanks everybody for listening into the New Zealand Tech Podcast uh, this week, and uh, we'll be back again with you um same time same place uh next week so uh look if you've you know if you've caught the stream through uh through one of our, our live uh videos and yeah you can follow us across uh um and myself across linkedin uh facebook uh twitter and uh and youtube um yeah you can catch the live content there but of course you know most people will listen in uh through a podcast app on their uh, on their phone so um you know if you if you haven't uh, subscribed, uh, which of course it's free, uh, to the New Zealand Tech Podcast on uh, one of those platforms, then um, I would suggest now's the time to do it. All right, thanks everyone. We'll catch you uh, next week on the next episode. See ya. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community. Proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.